Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is Huichol Indian Shamanism. My guest is my good friend Gail Heisen, who's been a guest on New Thinking Aloud several times before. Gail is a very talented shaman, psychic, medium. She is also the host of the podcast called Small Medium at Large. Gail lives in Sebastopol, California. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Gail. It's a pleasure once again to be with you. Thank you so much for having me again, Jeffrey. I love being on your show. We'll be talking about Huichol shamanism. I know it's a passion of yours, a, a long-standing passion that goes back even further than the extensive work we've already talked about in terms of your interaction with an initiation by the Mongolian shamans. Well, actually, I'm going to speak a lot about my experiences in the Huichol country and some of it touches upon Huichol shamans, but I don't have an experience of myself having any type of shamanic initiation with the Huicholes. That was all with my Mongolian uh, experience. So I just wanted to be sure that your listeners know my talks are really going to be about being immersed in the Huichol culture and what it was like to be at 10,000 feet elevation in the Sierra Madre Occidental Mountains of Mexico. To begin with, I think our viewers have probably already noticed you're wearing some unusual garb. Uh, you're wearing a Huichol Indian outfit. Uh, why don't we begin with that? Yes, this is the clothing that the women wear, and this is the headdress that they wear. This is really a practical thing because when you're in the mountains, it's very hot there in the day, very cold at night. But when you're walking through these uh, mountains and this is where, and you're wearing this particular headdress, it keeps your whole back and body cool. So it really serves a dual purpose. Your hair is covered, but you're also protecting yourself from the sun at the same time. I had a little difficulty putting my first one on because I couldn't figure out how you actually put this headdress on. But you invert it opposite, and it's two square panels that are sewn together, and then an opening is made for your head. And so you pull it down over your body and then lift it over your head this way, and then you're left with this particular uh, shape on your face with the pointiness coming forward like this. The earrings are one of the gifts I received when I was there. And I have to say to your listeners, it's 33 years ago that I'm going to be telling you stories from. So I have been involved now. I'm 66. I've been involved exactly 33 years with these group of people. And uh, again, just like the Mongolians, it feels like this is family to me. It's not just going to visit another culture. If our viewers haven't already seen some of your earlier interviews, I would particularly recommend that they check out the very first interview we did. I'm going to link to it because I know you tell some of the stories about your early acquaintance with the uh, Huichols in, in that first interview, and it would be very good preparation. I, I think also it's important to say you weren't initiated by the Huichol shamans. They have a very different process than the Mongolian shamans with whom you worked. However, you, uh, before you ever met your very first Huichol, you were already deeply immersed into the psychic world. And as I recall, you were drawn towards this very intense, decades-long interaction with the Huichols through dreams, which is very shamanistic to me to begin with. Well, in fact, I had six very important dreams in my involvement during my first two visits to the Huichol country. 
And I call it the Wichol country, even though it's Mexico. It's their own place there. And um, it all began... <laughs> First of all, I didn't know that the Wichol are a people who use their dreams to make decisions. I learned that later on when I attended my first peyote ceremony there. And I asked, what are the men doing? Because it was late at night and everyone had left. But the men who were the peyoteros, the men in charge, were all sitting in a circle together with their eyes closed. And my friend told me they're dreaming together as a group. And that's where they decide who the next uh, gobernador is, which is the governor, who's going to be the comisario, that's the head of the police, and all these, you know, I don't know if you'd call them government or political positions, are all decided in dream time. So I really was connecting to a people that dreams are extremely important to. So I really fit in <laughs> when it came to that. So I was here in my house in Sebastopol, where I've been for 44 years, and I woke up and I'd had this intense dream that there was an important man I was supposed to meet who had dark jet black hair and he was waiting for me to meet him in Taos, New Mexico at the Hanuman Temple. I had been to the Hanuman Temple previously. It wasn't ceremony. I just went to visit the head of the temple, Vishnu, and just to see the temple. And I happened to be in New Mexico traveling and it was a lovely place to go. So I had no problem at the idea of zipping back there again because I'd been there once already. And I, I happened to be timing it with something that they had called the Bandara, which is a big celebration. And there were hundreds of people in this little tiny temple and they were all there to celebrate with foods. And it was a very loving and lovely, lovely ceremony. When I walked into the ceremony, I looked over and I saw this man sitting there with colorful embroidered clothing on and I just knew he was the man in my dream. So I went over to him and said, hi, my name is Gail. I think you're the man in this dream that I've had. I know you might think I'm crazy, but I had a dream and it said I was supposed to meet you. And he's sitting there, you know, and he sounds like he's listening to everything I say. And then I find out he doesn't understand a word of English. He didn't know anything that I said and that I looked at his clothing and I had remembered going to some event once and I knew that that was like the color and clothings of the Weechol. So I said, are you a Weechol Indian? And as I was about to say that, he turned to me in Spanish and said, yo soy Weechol, yo soy Weechol, I am a Weechol. And so with my little bit of Spanish, that's, you know, mas o menos, we talked and we uh, spent the rest of the Bandara together and his energy just uplifted me. He happened to also be incredibly gorgeous, at least the type of guy that I would go for gorgeous. And um, he said, I'm selling some of my artwork. I'm here as a guest in New Mexico. Um, I'm assisting another artist and we're doing an exhibit at the museum, which is how he'd come to the United States for the first time. So I said, oh, I would love to, to buy one of your paintings. And he said, well, if you call me in Taos at the house I'm staying at, come over and I'll, I'll get you a painting. So we met at his friend's house. I bought a painting, a yarn painting, which is yarn pressed in beeswax. And this was a depiction of the shaman healing the child, which I think was one of his stories because he had been very ill as a child and the shaman had healed him. I bought that and uh, I said to him, if you'd like, I would take you out to see Bandelier National Monument and we can go look at all the caves of the Indian dwellers. We went there. We had an incredibly magnificent time there. And um, we went back to my friend's house. And as I am, we ended up having a wonderful lovemaking session all night together. And then we parted ways. And I said, if you ever come to California on your tour, please come and visit and you can stay with us. So he came to uh, California and before he arrived, I, I knew what he was flying into SFO and I had um, the information. I went to sleep that night, the night before picking him up. And I have this dream that he's standing in front of me and he's holding his hands out like this and he's presenting me with an eagle feather. And the eagle feather, I can tell, is very, very old. 
When I look at the end of the feather, I see this very unusual thing of a string tied all around the edge on the quill part. And that whitened part was completely dark with black and age. And that's what gave me the feeling that this was a very, very old feather. So when I picked him up at the airport, I described to him my dream, because when I have dreams that stay with me, that's how I can tell the intensity is different than a regular dream. And I explained it all in Spanish, and we get back to my house in Sebastopol, and he unwraps his his bag of goodies, and he takes out of his backpack, and he goes exactly like in the dream, and he presents me with this very old eagle feather. It had been given to him by one of the Hopi shamans in New Mexico. And the Hopis are considered uh, descendants or somehow they're related to the, the Weechol. Or, yeah, because the Weechol came before the Hopis. And um, he looked at me in sort of shock that I dreamt about it and gave me the feather as a gift. The feather had been gifted him and he gifted it to me. And I have this feather still to this day, of course. It was a strong and powerful dream. He understood it. He presented me with the item. We were connected. We had a lovely time here. He stayed for two months in a little guest house we had outside, and he created all these different yarn paintings, which in case your listeners don't know, beeswax is spread across a little thin piece of plywood and very, very thin, and it all has to be even. And then you take little strands of yarn and it's pressed into the beeswax till you form these amazing pictures, which are often the history of the Weecholes, stories about peyote, because these are considered, there's books written, they're called the people of the peyote. I've also heard that they were actually the group that really taught the Native Americans here the use of peyote because they go back a few thousand years or something, 15, whatever, 1500 or... Anyway, so I was really appreciative that we had this this dream together and that he understood what it meant. And then while he was here, I said, I would love to take you to Yosemite for one day because Yosemite was one of the most beautiful places to me in California. And I wanted to share the nature and beauty with someone that's really into nature like a all is. And for them, the gods are the gods of nature, the god of the sun, the god of the, you know, water. Anyways, so like is similar in Mongolian shamanism. It's all dealing with nature and spirits. So I take him to Yosemite, and because I happen to know the manager at the time of that, uh, that was working there managing Yosemite, we had this very special experience where he was dressed in all full Weechol clothing. So he's in colorful embroidered from head to toe, you know, depictions of deers and peyote and all these beautiful things. And he's incredibly good looking. And it was almost like he was strutting like a peacock as we walked down an entire red carpet through the entire dining room of the Yosemite, uh, at Yosemite at the Iwani Lodge. And when we went through into this magnificent place, we were given the same table that Queen Elizabeth had just been there recently. And so we were given the table of the queen. So I sat on one side and he sat on the other. And we had this whole little alcove of just the two of us. And when I tell you that every white-faced person in that entire dining room turned their heads and stared at us. And I thought to myself, I'm actually here in an Indian property in a place that's being honored about Indians. And I believe I have the only pure Indian in the building with me right now. (laughs) And the people are looking in there like, you know, oh my. So that's only the beginning of what it was like to be with Miguel. He liked to strut his way about him. And everywhere we went from the United States and all through Mexico, we always had heads turning because it was unusual for them to see a white woman with this Weechol man. So we had a wonderful experience. He went back home to Mexico and he said, I'm going to call you and invite you to come sometime when I get an invitation for you. For any of your listeners, you cannot just hop on a bus and say, I'm going to go see the Weecholes. You can only get there by invitation. This is not a open 
you know, it's just not open that way. It's that's it's that's how they've kept themselves sacred and how they've kept their their culture untouched. Like for hundreds of years when Christianity was taking over in Mexico, they were not going up to this 10,000 foot elevation. These people were living and keeping their traditions. And when I came there in 1987, I believe it was, I got to see the coming of the changes that were going to happen there in the next 33 years. So I'm really grateful to have gotten to see what it was like before all of this uh, technology and influences came so many years later. So at that time, uh, when he invited me, I flew, it was New Year's Eve, and I flew to Mexico City, and we made a long trek all the way to uh, the mountains of Mexico by him showing me different areas where Huichols are in these cities. So there's a place in Mexico City where the government gives them a place to live and they can sell their art. And it's like, you know, it's not a mall, but, you know, that kind of idea, a little shopping area. And you can come in and buy the beaded bracelets or, you know, paintings. And we went to the um, Anthropology Museum. And in there, he said to me, do you see this display? And I'm looking at the display and it's a thatch roof hut. And there's nothing modern there at all. And there's a little wood fire. And he said, that's how we live in the mountains, just like what you're seeing in this museum. And it is truly exactly a replica of how they live. When we got up there, I saw that. Oh, this is exactly what Miguel had shown me. So we get up to the 10,000 feet elevation. And let me tell you, this is a very unusual trek because there is no cell phones then there are no ways of communication except for telepathy and you're just waiting for someone to show up with the burrows and the mules so you can make your way up into this mountain so the last city that we went to where there was a switchboard for phones and being able to communicate and stock up on food i had been given a, a list by a gentleman who had come to my house named Fred Hopman. And he said, I hear you're going to the Weecholes and I want to tell you what you need to do to prepare to go there. Because it's more than just camping. You're going to somewhere, he said, you need to have antibiotics. You need to have a full, you know, a full first aid kit with all the things you might need if you get cut or hurt, because there will be nothing there for you to use to bandage yourself up. You need to have things in case you sprain your ankle. So I had to practice. After he started telling me all the things I needed to prepare, I was getting kind of scared about going there. But I prepared everything he said, including the fact he had told me to bring like dehydrated food or dried foods or anything that I'd have so I'd have food to eat while walking or trekking through the mountains. I had been told by another person who was involved with the Weecholes that I would never be invited into the peyote ceremony and I would never be invited to do all these different things, but that was actually not true and all of these things happened for me that everybody opened their their heart and door when I came to the Weecholes. The only people that were a little afraid of me was, well, people were children And when children would see me like they hadn't seen, and then, of course, I was really blonde and blue-eyed and uh, white, and they had never seen that kind of a person before. So when children saw me, they were a little freaked out at first, like, you know, who is she, you know? (laughs) What is this person? So they, when I would try to, like, give them a gift or reach out to them, the children would run away. But by time of the end of my visit, I had children sitting on my laps, and we had a lovely, lovely connection. Also, there was a lot of different stories going on, and exactly like it happened in Mongolia and Japan, I just somehow merge in, and I'm telepathically connected, and we I know what's going on in their families, and I know what's happening, and we have a wonderful communication with each other. While I was there, the women are all always doing all this amazing hard work, making the, the you know, grinding the corn, making the masa. Well, the first stop we had after we did all our touring around Mexico was Miguel brought me up to Rancho Torero, which is an amazing place at the top of the mountain that belongs to his father. And when you see the pictures, you can see forever when you are up there. When I arrived there, 
I had the same feeling like had happened to me in the Gobi Desert, where my heart just burst open and all I could do was just cry and just just succumb to the incredible energy of the place where I was going. And when they brought me to his dad, the it set up at all the, the, the few different ranches where I got to see how the Wichol live, which is different than when you go to the temple area. Everyone just has a little small spot there. But when you go to their homes, everyone has an honoring temple for their ancestors. In this case, Miguel's father had two of them, one for his mother and then another one for the father. And it was both for his wife and for him. And in there are all different items that are very sacred to honor the the passing of the ancestor. There may not be a room for people to sleep in, but there's temple there. So the importance and the sacredness that these people hold in ceremony and honoring ancestors is very powerful. There was a little house there that was built with cinder blocks, but everything else was adobe or thatch roof, little huts. And I have a photo of the three generations of the whole family all lined up there together. And me, <laughs> and me here with all of these people and all these children. And I'm seeing a poverty that I had not seen before where these children don't have pants or shoes or they just have a little shirt on and the, the, the parents are gone and the children are there alone just being cared for by each other's children and the other people are off doing work and hauling, you know, wood or, you know, doing the things to survive. It's not, they don't go to the store and buy the wood, you know, you have to chop a tree down. So um, I experienced how hard the women work and how um, the men, I know, are supposed to do all the work, but I didn't see as much work, so I'm not sure. It seemed like in all other cultures where the women do the cooking, the cleaning, the caring of the children, all of these things. So um, I was very, very grateful that there were all these women, but I couldn't get close to any of them, and I didn't understand why in the beginning, but it was because they did not speak Spanish. They only spoke Huichol. So when I was talking to them, they really didn't understand anything I was saying. And um, I had a dream when I was there before we went down to the sacred Las Latas temple where his dad was going to take me to. And in this dream, a book falls down into me, to my lap. And on the title of the book, it says, this is your totem. And if your listeners don't know, a totem is like a representative of somebody or something that's there to protect you. So mine, when I looked on the book, it was an eagle. And I said, wow, this is really something. I'm now having a dropping of this book with the eagle. And I really didn't know what this meant. And the next day, when we did the hike, which was another five hour walking through the mountains from uh, Rancho Torero to the sacred grounds of Las Latas, we, um, I had this dream and I told him about it. And as we go, I look up in the sky and an eagle looks straight at me right into my eye. And I feel like I know it's okay. I'm, I'm here and it's going to be fine. Prior to that dream, I was a little scared being in the mountains. I had, you know, I don't know that anybody does these things. I'm a young woman, 33 years old running off to a tribe of people I don't know, don't speak the language. And I started seeing things like there would be some drunk men that might be coming through, walking around that were very drunk. They could have, you know, I could have been hurt. I could have been harmed. There's so many things that could have happened that at night I was having anxieties about while sleeping there, realizing that I'd left my home and just ran off to these people thinking everything would be fine and trustworthy. When I saw the eagle look me in the eye, I knew that I was on the right path and that it was okay to have the anxieties I had because they were very real and it is a very dangerous place to be. And I found out later things like, you know, they don't, there are banditos that hide in the hills there. They're not Weechol, but they're banditos. 
And when they know that there's somebody or a truck coming through, they leap out and stop the truck and take everyone's money and everyone's things and la, la, la. So that's why we ended up doing our traveling at very odd hours at three in the morning and these kind of things. I didn't realize they were protecting me the whole time by not being exposed at the, at the times and being in places where danger could occur. So anyways, I was happy for those dreams because they were telling me about this. Well, the father says, I'm taking you to Las Latas and I don't know what this means. All I know is that it's a sacred ceremonial place. When we get there, there's a few different adobe huts, but mainly is the temple in the middle called the Holly, the, the Kali Way. And the Kali Way is where all the ceremony happens. And it happens every five years. A new roof is replaced with all new wood, all new poles, all new grass for the thatched roof part of it. It's very dangerous. Sometimes a weechel could break his leg or even lose his life because they're not using ladders and they're building this incredibly tall roof. And uh, it all has to do with the fact that there will be now new peyoteros who will be in charge of the ceremony and what's going to happen here in this Las Latas and the sacred grounds. So I go to sleep that night and... I have something that I can't really call a dream, but it's happened to me in Mongolia. It's happened to me in other places. It's I'm starting out in a dreamlike state, but when I open my eyes, the experience is still happening. So that's why I can't really call this a dream. But I'm in the little adobe hut, and there's no windows in these. There's only a little wood door and being four foot 11 and three fourths like I am really helps because the doorways are very short. <laughs> I still hit my head anyway, but you kind of go inside. So when I tell you there's darkness in there, it's like a black darkness like you cannot imagine. There is no light whatsoever. And I'm awake and I see this amazing vision that's going like this in a diamond shape coming down. And it's colorful pixels, tiny, like, I don't even know how to say how tiny these were. Whatever that is, tiny, tiny, tiny. And they're all perfect. Every pixel is lined up, every color, and the thing is glowing like an energy force that I'm in awe. My jaw is dropped. I'm in the darkness seeing this colorful, beautiful thing. Now, had I eaten peyote... Or had I been tripping, I would have then definitely said it had to do with the fact that I was on a psychedelic drug. But I was not tripping. All I ever, all I had was exercise, walking, and coming to this mountain. So the next day, that day after you know the sun rose, I felt so intense about this vision that I drew it, and I don't draw very well, but I drew the vision and with the energy things coming out of it for Miguel's dad, who at that time was 89. He lived to about 105 or six or something, and I will talk more about him in our other talks. His Spanish name is Guadalupe, so we refer to him as Guadalupe. Guadalupe didn't have a gray hair in his head at 89 and a thick head of jet jet black hair. And he was considered one of the most respected men in the community because he was one of the men who really holds the tradition and remembers how the ceremonies and things and what are supposed to be conducted. So he's a very important person. And he knew exactly what my dream was. He said, oh, you had this dream because you're sleeping in a place where the temple has been here for more than three or 400 years and it's only been used for peyote ceremony and for the consuming of peyote here. And he said, and what you're seeing is what Carl Lumholtz, who's a um, author of Weechol books, if anyone wants to read about the history of them, he coined the name, the God's Eye. Well, here I am at the place where the origination of the God's Eye 
yarn symbols that, I mean, we made them in school. It was part of a arts and crafts sort of thing. It's something that we all know about, but I didn't know the history of where the God's Eye came from. And there I am seeing the vision of the God's Eye exactly like you see the yarn thing. And for someone to tell me that that's what I had seen and that the reason I had seen it was because of the energy and density of that place. Even though there was no ceremony then, that was, you know, we're just the few people who are the caretakers of the temple. They live around it and they take care of it. I'll be able to speak later uh, in another show about how in 33 years, what that area looks like now, 33 years later, because things have changed a lot. But it was a very amazing little place to be in. And as I said, I'm kind of blending two things together here. I returned to that place some months later to attend the peyote ceremony. And that was a very incredible uh, experience. But before I go to that, I want to return back to what it was like to be in a community with a family and participating with them in the work. So there was, there's a lot to do. You're not sitting around all day long here. You have to make tortillas. And this is all by husking the corn. And when I was there on that first trip, it happened to be the month where all the corn had been harvested and was sitting in huge uh, burlap bags. And I'm talking, you know, many 50-pound bags of corns. And what you do is the whole family is like the happy, joyous occasion because it's the harvest. And these people are artists and farmers, and that's how they've earned their living. And they have the blue corn, the yellow corn, the white corn, a red corn, uh, if I'm forgetting one, pardon me. But all these corns are what used to make the, the masa, the tortillas for the tamales. This, this is an important thing. How do you get all these kernels off of this? Well, you have a big party at your house with your family and everyone sits around. A, a, a large amount of plastic tarps are on the ground and the corns are piled high and each kid and each, I mean, everyone works there. A child carries water. You know, when once a child is old enough to do things, five years old, they are working. They're not sitting around playing with toys. They're playing and being with kids on other times of the day, but they're also helping to keep everything going. So I'm sitting there with the children and we're taking these. We The men, of course, get a chair, but the women only have a little stool. And you take the corn husks and you rush you run them over these rocks and the corn husks, the corn falls off the husk and then they're put in baskets and they stand tall and they drop all the little corn pieces. And as the corn comes down, all the flecky white stuff blows away in the wind and then the corn becomes bagged to turn into masa. To turn it into masa, a woman stands there for hours starting at about four in the morning and you're grinding the corn, grinding the corn. I tried to grind the corn and I couldn't do it for more than three minutes because it was such a painful, it was a muscle I had never used. I could not grind corn and I felt so bad that I couldn't participate. I could get the husks off on the rock, but I couldn't get the, the corn. So I ended up being put on a job making uh, candles. And I had no idea about the preciousness of beeswax there because I'm thinking like an American, you know, oh, yeah, I'll mix it. So I'm making this. Miguel's mother comes in and we've all eaten like when everybody's working, they're all eating small little pieces of peyote. They're not getting high and having, uh, you know, the dream type and the, and, the, and, the, and the images and things. All they're doing is getting the energy to be able to work almost like you know, using cocoa leaves or that kind of a thing. So it's it's not being used as a psychedelic is all I'm trying to say. It's being used as a way to be able to accomplish everything they need to do to get it done. So Miguel's mother, Maria, is looking over to the side while she's preparing something. And I'm sitting there playing with the wax and I'm feeling the peyote and I'm just making these candles. And all of a sudden she looks over and she goes, oh, <laughs> I had made a taper thick candle. They were supposed to be like the thinness of a birthday candle. And wax is very precious there. And you have to really 
take care of every bit of it that you have. And this is what you're going to use for light. There's no lights there. There's no, so this is your lights. And I'm sitting there making like, you know, a dining room candles. <laughs> so she took me off candle making and I got put on, um, uh, tamale wrapping of the corn husks and wrapping up all the tamales. And having had been a caterer, that was the perfect job for me. And I didn't fail at that. And I strung everything, tied everything, did a really good job. So they found a place for me. I was also went with the men to gather wood because I could do that also. But some of the women's jobs, I, as much as I wanted to help them, I was not physically able to do them. So I feel like I'm rattling on here. <laughs> so in that trip, I... I had to learn things about shamanism, which was uh, that there are good and bad shamans. And they were explaining that to me when I was there, that because I was there, I was never to accept any food. I could accept the food from anyone that came up and gave it to me. And people would just walk by and bring something to me sometimes. I couldn't accept that. I would just say, thank you, he said, and put it in my bag. Because he said, we have shamans that are are negative, that do negative, bad things to people. They can uh, hurt somebody. The person falls and they don't know why, but it's really the shaman from a distance who's pushed them. And uh, they can become ill. And so if you were to take a soda, he said, if someone gives you a soda, he said, don't ever drink the soda because we don't know what kind of you know, invisible force was put into that, you could drink it and then become terribly sick. They could be jealous that you're here. They could be feeling they don't want you here. You're not sure why, but something like that could happen. So every time I was given a gift, I put it in a bag and I waited and Miguel or his father would see who gave it to me. And then they'd say whether it was okay for me to eat that particular thing. During this trip there, I had some something that was very devastating for me that had happened, which is I had been wanting to have children with my first husband and it had been more than 10 years that I had been trying to conceive a second child and I never got pregnant. And I never, you know, used anything to prevent pregnancy all the years. I was trying to always get pregnant. So when I was there, I mentioned to a shaman how I had... um not been able to conceive and how important that was to me to have children. One of the things that happened during this is I was called over, as I told you, there's a temple at different people's homes. Well, when you go to Las Latas, that's what it is. It's one huge temple and then smaller temples next to them. And they're designated for different things. I, I'm not able to really tell you what's supposed to go on in each of those temples, except for the Kaliway. And I was brought into the temple and there was this little six-year-old boy who was laying on a little wood mat or something, a little bed, and he was so emaciated and they said he had not been able to eat food for two months and that he couldn't hold anything down and that he himself was a peyoteros. So he was one of the peyoteros is someone that for five years commits their time, energy, and everything for the community, for the different ceremonies and the things that have to go on during that five-year period. I was told, and I, you know, to any of your listeners, I'm sharing things that I was told. I'm not sure that these are all 100%. I don't ever say that everything I'm saying is 100% accurate, but I was told that... Um, when you're a baby and you're a weechol, you're given little tastes of the peyote as an infant and they see how you react to the taste of it or if it's familiar to you. Just similar like when the Buddhists look for the food bowl to see who they've been reincarnated to. This is to see whether you have the peyoteros in you. So this was a six-year-old boy who as a baby had taken very positively to the tastes of the peyote. So he is then initiated as six years old as a peyoteros. So for the next five years, he would have been in charge of being part of the ceremony like the other 35 men and women is 36 that are part of the ceremony. 
And by the way, they are men and women. There's no discrimination in a woman or a man as far as participating in the in the ceremony this way or, you know, being a shaman. So, you see my head just falling down a little. <laughs> so, I went in and when I saw him, I was so... First of all, because I had such a desire for my own children to see these children suffering or, you know, their parents are working and they're all left alone. I just wanted to, like, gather up all these young kids and take them home with me because <laughs> I wanted a child, you know. So I went to his place and I fed him. I had brought packets of miso soup. And for some reason, the miso soup he was able to take and it, he wouldn't throw up. So his mother kept coming back, kept coming back to me that day and saying, please come and see him again. Please come and see him again, which I thought was amazing because I'm this, you know, white person here. So I brought him a little flashlight. I brought him some little toys and things I had to keep him company. He wanted to sit up to talk to me, to, to visit with me, but he was so weak and he was doing it just to be like honoring. And I was like, no, no, please lay down, lay down. And this was during the peyote ceremony. So I kept asking, why isn't his family bringing him down to a clinic or a place? And this is where I learned that ceremony is more important because that is, it's, it's more important than life at this moment. And so this man said, I can't bring my son down there right now. I can't do anything until after the ceremony is over. After it's over, I'm happy to take him to do whatever we need to do. Well, there was an, a group from Mexico City of anthropologists who happened to be attending this peyote ceremony who told me, we can't believe you're here. No white woman. There's very few white women who have ever attended this ceremony up here. And we're shocked that they invited you. So I was getting information from other places saying, you don't get to go here to this. <laughs> this is a very rare thing. So I told them about the child and he said, oh, one of us is a doctor. So they went and examined the child and they came back and told me the child has spinal meningitis and he's very, very sick. And they said, we gave him a shot of penicillin. I guess the parents agreed. And they said, what you're doing is the best thing that you could help him is keep bringing him these soups and foods to try to get him strong again. He said, and we've told them to bring them down to the clinic and we'll take care of this young boy. Well, the ceremony for the peyote lasts for five days. So every day I'm going there to the temple, also participating in the ceremony, and I'm taking care of this little boy. And I'm leaving my little hut again. I got all my stuff ready in the morning, and I'm going to walk over to the temple. And I see Miguel's mother, Maria, and she's pulling a, a mule. And I said, she says to me, where are you going? I said, I'm going to bring him his soup. And she said, oh, no, he's dead. And I was just devastated. He had died that night. And I started to feel guilt from my upbringing that maybe the die shouldn't have told the doctor. Was it the penicillin that killed him? Did I somehow, you know, I mean, there was all kind of thoughts going in my in my mind that maybe I should have never mentioned a thing. And maybe the child would still be alive suffering, but he'd still be alive. Whether any of that was the reason he passed away, I'll never know. Of course, they said he was very ill with spinal meningitis. I know he had been sick for many, many months, but I still felt some sort of a guilt that I somehow maybe shouldn't have said there's a doctor here. But the parents did say, yes, we will let him look at them. So it was their permission. But I still felt <sighs> anyway. And uh, how it was handled Death there is not handled like here with the death that I, you know, we, you see tremendous amounts of grieving and all of these other things that went, what go on in art passing of a person. So that was a very deep connection for me to be able to, 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 to help feed this child in his last few days of life. It was, you know, not part of what I would be doing, I thought, at a peyote ceremony. I don't know how we're doing, but I would love to explain what the peyote ceremony was about if we have enough time. We'll take the time, of course. So I want to mention that 
this is a very important sacred ceremony and that it's 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 not it's 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 very serious and there are many things that go on during the ceremony i'm going to share what i saw but i don't want anyone to think that i'm saying this is how it's done or this is set in stone i'm just saying what i saw when i was there and i'm sure if they read about it they'll find more of the exact information of how the ceremony is conducted at the beginning of the ceremony uh there's two, well, I'll call them three stations that are set up. In the center of the of the uh, Las Latas, of the Caliway, it's a big circle, huge circle, all dirt. And that's where all the ceremony is going to be conducted. And the temples are all around the edges and the, the little places for you to stay. In the center, there are the three jefes. The jefes are the men who are in charge. They're the... Of the 36 peyoteros, they're the three bosses, or they say jefe. These men sit for five straight days. And by the way, when I say this goes on for five straight days, there is no sleep. For five straight days, day and night, the drumming, the dancing, this continues on. The people that are attending, like myself and others, we get to dance and be in the circle and do the ceremony, but we do not intermingle with the 36 peyoteros who are doing the same thing in the same place, but separate from you on the, you know, you're next to them. These men are all dressed in the most colorful regalia you can imagine. And they have all these amazing, um, uh, beautiful things that they're wearing. In fact, there's another dream I'm going to have to intercept that I don't want to forget about here. So sorry if I have to step back here for one minute because it has to do with the ceremony and the beginning of it. The night before we get to the ceremony, we're sleeping at some out in the field somewhere because it's a long walk. And in those days, you could only walk to get to these places. To this day, you still can only walk to Las Latas or get there by helicopter. There's no other... No vehicle is coming there. But you can get to the Pueblos and all the other places with, you know, with a vehicle. So we're sleeping at somebody's house out in the field. And it's before our descent to go down into Las Latas, which is a very steep incline going way, way down into here. And I have this crazy dream. First of all, I happen to be afraid of snakes. They, they terrify me. I'm sure a lot of people can understand that. Well, in the dream, I see this snake and it's bitten me right here on this part of my hand. And it's jet black and it has yellow diamonds down the back, you know, diamond shape. And then there's another one that's bit me on the neck over here and it's dangling from me. And in the dream, I'm like terrified. I got the snakes dangling off me. And I look at this snake and I say, that's the strangest thing. It's painted with blue diamonds down the back. And I thought blue seemed like such a strange color for a snake to have. So I tell my dream to Miguel in the morning when I wake up, we get to the ceremony. When the ceremony begins, the first dancers is a very select person and it's usually a younger man. And he is the dance, the head of the dancing for five days. And he is dressed in unbelievable feathers. I will have a photo for you to see all this. And he is um, holding two carved wood snakes in his hand. And one is jet black with yellow diamonds on the back. And the other is black with the blue diamonds painted down the back. And this is not a real snake. This is a painted snake. And he's using that as the beginning to start the ceremony. So I had dreamt the night before exactly what was going to be shown to me. This was, when I saw those, I was floored. And so was Miguel, because he didn't know who I was, you know? <laughs> so the ceremony starts. There's the blowing of the horns that begins this, the starting of the ceremony. And it's animal horns that are from their sheep. And after the horns are blown and the dancing begins, it's a very 
set dance. It's not like the people are randomly dancing. It's sort of a two-step this way, then a couple steps backwards, then two-step forward. For some reason, it was very hard for me to get the little dance, but the 36 peyoteros are doing this, and the only time they stop is when more peyote needs to be prepared or when uh, someone may go for a quick bathroom. But basically, you're seeing people staying up for five straight days and dancing. So they're dancing. The other rest of us are dancing how you want, and you can stop and rest in between. And as I had been said earlier, someone had said I would never be invited. Well, immediately, an elderly woman grabbed my hand as I was sitting on my rock, and she said, come. And she took me into the dance, and I was part of the whole peyote ceremony. She taught me what to do properly, which is first, you go to the first station I spoke about, and there you see a big ceramic clay, not ceramic, but a clay pot that's all handmade. And in that pot is peyote tea. It's peyote that's been mixed with water and has been cooked. And it's a tea that you're going to drink. Next to that is a small little tiny pine tree. And then you go there. The first thing you do is you take a <laughs> a ladle of which I realized later I had drank out of the ladle that all every single person there had drank out of. So you all drank out of the one same ladle. You have your sip of peyote and then you put like a sprinkle onto the pine tree. Then you go across to the other side in the circle and there's exactly the same thing again. And there's a weechal watching that. And you then take your next sip of your peyote. You take your, um, blessing to the pine tree, and then you go in front of the jefes. And that's where I was scared because I had been filled with fear that I wouldn't be welcome there. And I know these were the men in charge. And I thought to myself, well, this old lady took me in, but I don't know if these guys really want me here. Maybe they're going to say out or I don't know, you know, and you have to go in front of them. And each man is sitting there in the special Weechel chair, which I'll have photos for you to see all handmade that only men can sit in. And these are specifically ceremonial chairs. They're sitting there and in front of them, each one of them, there's like a hundred peyotes all standing there, all the big buttons, all lined up, beautiful cactus. And they had hand picked them sacredly and ceremonially with a bow and arrow. And they had put them there for you then again you had to eat some of it in front of each one of the three uh hefes. so you ate your little bite of peyote with the first man you ate your little bite bite of peyote with the second one and then you ended up at the last the third one when we got to the last one the man looked up at me and gave me a big smile and like some kind of little something or other on like this to me and I knew that it was okay for me to be there and that I had been accepted and it was all right to be part of this ceremony. I could never, uh, did not take the amount of peyote like I would have, say, in my teenage years when I was doing psychedelics because I don't speak the language. I'm all alone by myself. I didn't want to have some kind of out-of-body experience and not be in a place that I felt completely safe and understood. So I just took enough that it just made me want to dance like them and stay awake and just feel filled with, you know, love and joy inside. So that was about the amount that, that I had taken during that time. The ceremony at a certain point, I don't know which day it is, if it was the first day or not, everybody breaks up and everyone goes to the side and there's a special yellow paste that has been made from the root of a, uh, I don't know if it's a plant or a gourd or something, but it's a root of something, some sort of plant thing. And they take that root and they carve it out and they turn it into this yellow paint. And there they were and everyone was painting their faces. And there's something about the design and the painting of the face is where they're going into the next stage of this ceremony. The painting signifies this. I watched all the painting and everyone then reconvened again. And again, the same thing with the dancing, the drumming. 
and um, there's children, you know, everyone's there in families. This is not like just for adults or anything like this. This is not a ceremony for children, but we will talk about that in our next talk when we talk about the ceremony of the corn, which is a special ceremony for children, you know, specifically for children. So this went on for five days. I was there for the entire time. And at the end of the uh, peyote ceremony, there's two things that happen. One is there's this special like race where there's a feather that's been put somewhere at the top of the mountain in a specific place. And all the young men leave at exactly the moment they say, and whoever gets to the top of the mountain and gets that feather first and comes back down to the ceremonial grounds, is it's like some type of an honor to go and get this particular feather. So that's one of the important things. There's also a round ball of grain that's made with, I think, a ram, a ram? I can't remember the names of the grains, but these different grains are made together into a round ball. And at the end of the ceremony, everyone is given this ball. I still have mine 33 years later, by the way. <laughs> I've kept it sacredly. You're supposed to, I think you eat it or you do something with it, but it's something important and significant in the ceremony. And so I watched the person who ran all the way up to the mountaintop and come back. And he, you know, it's amazing because we're not talking a road. They're, they're scaling up a mountain. So there's, there's tests of showing your ability during this kind of a ceremony. That day, at the end of the ceremony, they said, now we go back to Wirakuta. Wirakuta is the name of the area they called. It's in San Luis Potosi in Mexico, in the desert land. And it's a sacred area where they feel is the beginning of their people. And that's where all the peyote grows. At the time, they asked me, would I please drive them because it's a 400-mile drive? They used to walk it in the old days, there and back. Would I please drive them there and I could participate in them helping them picking of the peyote? I knew this was an incredible honor. And so when I was asked to do this, I mean, probably it was only because they knew I drive, but either way, it was an honor that they'd ask me to take them there and bring them to get their peyote. So I said, yes, I would be thrilled. I'm honored. That night, I have a horrendous dream. And in the dream, I see that my daughter, Nancy, I only had one child at that time, and she was about 10, I think. And in the dream, I see that she's going to get very, very sick and maybe she's going to die. And so I take that dream when I wake up and I say, I'm sorry, we have to change the plans. We're not, I'm not going to Wirakuta. I need to go home to California immediately. And this is a people who, when you say you have a dream, they respect, you know, they don't sit there and say, oh, you're crazy. You don't need to do that. That was just a dream. Of course we could go. They didn't say that. They took me immediately, and it's such a trek to get out of there and to get to a phone. It's almost, it could take up to two days to get out, depending, you know, if your leg is hurt or your knee isn't swollen or whatever. <laughs> but you're doing a lot of walking. And by the way, as the respect is, women don't wear pants there. I only dressed in dresses when I was there. But when we walked and hiked, I explained to them, I must leave my pants on for this. I'm not being disrespectful. I will fall in a dress. And they were fine with that. As long as before I entered the sacred area, I had my Weechel clothing on. And uh, when I was leaving, but once I left there, then I could switch into the pants. So I, um, I get to the switchboard in the last Pueblo, which is called um, Last Town. The Last Pueblo is Tensompa, which doesn't have phones or electricity back then. And I go to Huayokia, which has a bank and stores, and it's still a very small little place, like a, you know, smaller than a Sebastopol, but it has all the, you know, modern things like a switchboard for a telephone call. So it was very many hours I had to sit there, and we got the phone call in, and sure enough, 
my husband, my first husband, Arthur, says, no, Nancy's fine. Everyone's fine. Go to Wiracuda. Have a good time. Just, you know, you know, when you get back. And I said, no, the way I feel about this dream, I have to come home right now. So I get on a plane. I fly back to the United States. And Nancy and Arthur are outside waiting for me because you have to go through customs before you can get out. Well, I'm waiting and waiting. Everyone's gone already. All the people have their bags. And where is my bags? And at that time, I traveled in a duffel bag because I knew it had to be on a mule. So you don't take a suitcase to go to this place, right? So I go like this. There's nobody in the cold place. I'm all by myself. And I go and I pick, go to pick up my luggage. And as I put my hand on the luggage, customs put their hand. I had a guy on each side and they were ready to arrest me. And they had, they were on each side of me. And I looked at them and I said, why am I being pulled out of this with my luggage? And they said, our dogs went crazy on your luggage. You're going to have to empty everything out here in front of us. There's things in here that are not allowed. There's something in here that they're gone crazy over. So then I was stricken with fear that maybe one of the weecholes when I left put in some kind of gift for me. Maybe it's peyote. I don't, you know what I mean? I don't know what's in the bag. So I'm terrified. And my, um, they looked through and I had to, I had no lawn, nothing had been washed in that entire time. And my duffel bag had been laid in grounds with pig shit and cow shit and all kinds of animal shit. And it had trekked through all these different places. So it had smells on it that drove the dogs crazy. They discovered there was nothing illegal in any of my bags. And the stench of my dirty clothes and everything that came out was really what drove them all wild. So when they let me out, my husband and daughter were sitting there wondering, like, was, maybe I'm never coming out again, you know? <laughs> and I got in the car and Nancy said, oh, yeah, yeah. We, we got in the car. She lay down in the back and started to get sick. By the time we got home for the two hours to get to our house, she had fever. We thought she had a flu. We called a doctor the next day. We described the symptoms. They said, you don't have to bring her in. It's a flu. And then each day she started to get sicker and sicker. And by the fourth or fifth day, we had to rush her to the emergency room. And because of my no doctor thing from my father, I'm thinking, oh, well, the doctor said she's fine. We'll just keep her home. She had an appendicitis rupture that the appendicitis was so huge that the doctor said it just exploded in his hand when he started the surgery. He could, she could have died, he said, and she had to spend 10 days in the hospital after this because of how bad and serious the condition was. She had to have double cuts to be able to drain the, the, um, the, the, the pus that was in her. He said it was like soda cans filled. And if I had been in Wiracuta, I would not have known till she'd have been in the hospital, out of the hospital. There would have been no communication or phone call. And this is where I find my dreams to be the most powerful and helpful things that can guide you when you listen to them. And this to me was an, an important, important thing because my daughter is so, you know, I want her to be safe. So that was my last dream on that those two trips. I had very different dreams, but they all were very significant, important dreams. And dreaming is part of shamanic ways. But I never thought of myself becoming a shaman then or any of the kind of things that happened, you know, some 25 years later. But it seems that all these things were things that were teaching and preparing me for the future of stuff I would be doing in the shaman world. Well, that is a very thorough, rich story. I almost feel like I've been there with you, Gail. Oh. Well, I know there's much, much more to your adventures in the Huichil country, so we will continue our conversation. Your experiences amongst the Weechels are equally rich and uh, potent as your experiences with the Mongolians where you were actually initiated. So I'm very excited to continue the conversations with you in the future, Gail. 
Well, I'm looking forward to it and I'm looking forward to sharing all of these things with your listeners because it's part of my experiences of life and it makes makes me who I am and I want to really share from my heart what's what what what's possible in life when you don't say no. <laughs> And I'd also like to emphasize how significant it is that you allowed your life to be shaped in this way by dreams, because I can attest for myself, too. My whole life has been colored by, not just colored by, but transformed by certain dreams that, that I have had that have led me to my unique destiny. So, what a joy to share these stories with you, Gail. Well, thank you so much. I hope that your audience enjoys them, and I hope that we all understand that by sharing stories, we're also sharing about healing. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. Thank you.